according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me as we get started once again in Proverbs 21. We are in Proverbs 21, 21, where we left off last week, and we'll move on to verses 22 and following. We'll see if we can cover 22, 23, 24, see how far we get with it today. I do kind of want to pick up the pace, as I've mentioned, uh, if we can get through chapters 22, 23, 24 before uh, January, uh, December, then I think we get to a marvelous stopping point before we have a one-year break in, uh, in the Proverbs series. But that's my plan. God's got a plan, and uh, his, is, his is eternal and better and smart. Mine is just mine. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again. You are eternally faithful and um, from Alpha to Omega and every day, every moment, every split second in between, you are infinitely faithful. And so for this moment, Father, we do call upon your faithfulness to bless our time of study. Hedge us about and protect us, hinder anyone that would try to come in here and bring us to harm or stop what we're doing and allow for the word of God to go forth both locally and by the YouTube stream around the world, wherever you want to take it. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs 21, 21, and uh, picking up in our slideshow here where we left off a week ago. I'm going to be a little bit out of sorts, actually, because I don't have my paper notes in front of me. I'm just going to follow the slideshow and see where it takes us, <laughs> which I can do. The slides are there and ready to go, but um, I like having a piece of paper in front of me. That's just old school, I guess. I like having paper in front of me where I can see not only where we are, but what's coming up and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. But as it is, I think, if I have the right slide ready to go, we were looking last week at Proverbs 21.21, and I really want to expand upon this, not so much today, but in the months and years ahead. I've got kind of a, a side project, if you will, that's going on on a lot of other studies but looking at Old Testament soteriological principles and Old Testament uh, sanctification principles related to how, a, how an unbeliever came to eternal life and, and how they grew in their, in their uh, Christian walk. And uh, trying to take many of the passages that we encounter and if we can, you know, uh, take our church age vocabulary, our, our you know, doctrinal uh, expressions and try to superimpose them, lay them on top of the Old Testament passages as we encounter them. And so here in Proverbs 21, 21, I'll just give this by way of example and what we were dealing with last week. He who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life, righteousness, and honor. Now, there's several principles we can draw out of this. And of course, all of the vocabulary is very rich and we've got uh, doctrinal concepts that relate here. And when we do our categorical studies, um, all of these things uh, need to be looked at. But pursuing righteousness and loyalty, and we can, we can um, up make applications out of this verse related to a salvation moment, and we can make applications out of this verse related to the experience of the Christian walk. So in other words, top circle, bottom circle, if I was going to use Colonel Theme's old diagram. And and the issues there, the positional truth of getting saved, and then the experiential truth 
of, uh, of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, of living our, our uh, post-regeneration, you know, our, our, our Christian way of life, our regenerate way of life. And uh, so it's not always easy to do in a lot of passages because um, trying to, uh, trying to uh, inject a, uh, a church age vocabulary back upon an Old Testament text is, is, is problematic in, in a lot of respects. But anyway, so pursuing righteousness, some folks would struggle with this because that would appear to be human effort. That would appear to be works. That would appear to be something that I'm doing to earn eternal life. I'm not saying that, okay? Let's relax. We're still a grace ministry, okay? But what we're, 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 we, we realize that the language in the Old Testament, we do have to work with it. We do have to be, uh, you know, have caution as we superimpose a New Testament understanding on an Old Testament text. But we're doing this for a point. And here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to put ourselves back into that era. We're trying to understand Old Testament soteriology as they would have understood it, using the language they were comfortable using, using the biblical language that they had available to them. And we're not we're not blaming them because they didn't have John 3.16. We're not blaming them because they didn't have Acts 16.31. We, uh, we're, we're actually crediting them for the understanding they had based upon the, the Hebrew text that they had. And I love the fact, uh, this is the last thing I'll say on this, I love the fact when we had um, uh, the, the missionary report that we had Sunday morning and, and to hear Dan Hill talking about the reminder that everybody before Moses had no Bible whatsoever, <laughs> okay? And so that means that, in that when you go through that hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, you know, you're talking about Noah, and you're talking about Abraham, and you're talking about Enoch, and all these guys, they had no Bible. There was no Hebrew canon of Scripture until, until Moses. And so um, I think that's good to keep that in mind. And then even after Moses, how much of the Bible did they have? And you start to see how it came together piece by piece by piece with, with the Torah, with the law, what we call the Pentateuch, right? The first five books plus Job. And then the remainder of the Old Testament as it fell into place, I think it's good to, to track how it fell in place, in what order, in what parts. And, uh, and then only use those scriptures that were available at that time in order to, uh, to present the soteriological and uh, sanctification principles that as we encounter them in, uh, in the Old Testament. So anyway, stay tuned for that. Uh, but I, I do think this is pretty blunt, pursuing righteousness and loyalty. There's only one way to obtain righteousness, and that's for, to have it imputed to your account. And we know that. And so pursuing that, coming to uh, eternal life, coming to faith, coming to the point where you, you leave aside your own merit and works and you freely accept the, the righteousness of God. And this is a, a hang-up for the Jewish people, even to this day, not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They didn't come to it because it was not uniting the Word of God with faith. And there's other elements there that I think uh, we can go into. So last week we worked our way through these passages. We saw uh, these issues of coming to Christ and walking with Christ. Let's, uh, let's tear down some cities if we, can, if we can here this morning. Verse 22, moving on then to verse 22. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. A wise man scales the city of the mighty. Well, which city is that? A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in 
in which they trust. All right, we've got a marvelous passage here. We need to understand it for what it's saying, not only in the original Old Testament context, but then how we apply it today in the church age, because we do have a New Testament equivalent of this. And in fact, it might be shocking for us to realize that Israel had an Old Testament equivalent of the passage that we've been enjoying for years and years. So uh, we have to kind of study it from, from both sides. This would be then point 18 in the outline. Proverbs 21.22 is the Old Testament predecessor to 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. Proverbs 21.22 is the predecessor, the forerunner. Not the foundation or the basis, because I think they're grounded on different issues. But they had a, a promise given to them and an expectation. We have a promise given to us and an expectation. Grounded in different issues and coming from different uh, uh, stewardship responsibilities. Proverbs 21-22 is the Old Testament predecessor to 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5. I'm going to finish the point and finish the slide here in a moment, but I think it'd be useful if we can, no I'll finish it now and then we'll read these passages here side by side. The blessings of divine viewpoint for believers grounded in the Word of God arm us for the angelic conflict. These blessings arm us they arm us in the church age. They armed Israel in the Old Testament. Now, our, the scope of our, of our battlefield uh, activities is different in the church age than it was in the Old Testament. But the truth is they still had angelic conflict expectations in their day and age, in their stewardship. And, uh, and I think those distinctions are worth pointing out, but then the similarities are also worth pointing out. And that's part of why I think I'm, I'm thankful that this, this project of mine is, is playing out the way that it is. So the blessing is a divine viewpoint for believers grounded in the Word of God. So that right there, you've got to start with that. If you're not a believer grounded in the Word of God, then you don't have divine viewpoint. <laughs> that means you're, you're being conformed to this world and you're just as useless as the unbeliever, okay? Because you're saturated with human viewpoint and even though you happen to be saved, um, you're not engaged in the angelic conflict. You're a prisoner of war in the angelic conflict. You and your human viewpoint are serving the adversary. But with divine viewpoint and the blessings of that, with divine viewpoint then, we're grounded in the Word of God, we're now armed for the angelic conflict. Even in the darkness of this human viewpoint, uh, even Solomon had a perspective related to this uh, that comes across in uh, Ecclesiastes. So we'll finish that up here in, uh, in a moment as well. But let's talk about this and let's talk about... Um, Proverbs 21-22 in the uh, context of 2 Corinthians 10. And so, um, let's see how I want to do this now. Let's just go full window like this. We'll let the desk figure out how they're going to broadcast this on YouTube. And let's uh, make a second window here and put them side by side. How about that? can't do this with a paper Bible, can you? Okay, you can kind of hold it open to two different places at once. I get that. 2 Corinthians 10. And so keep in mind, what we're looking at here is Proverbs 21-22 demonstrating that it is the Old Testament predecessor to 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5. All right? And so uh, we're looking at these passages in parallel. So Proverbs 21-22 says, A wise man scales the city of the mighty, and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. 
Now, if you, if you think this is only talking in earthly terms, this is only talking uh, about something like Jericho or Jerusalem or, or uh, the conquest of, uh, of uh, Hebron or anything like that. If you've got it in your mind that the Old Testament is all about the external deeds and the New Testament is about the spiritual realities, throw that away, okay? Because Proverbs here is talking about the spiritual realities. A wise man, not talking about a military man, not talking about a soldier, not talking about Joshua's conquest, not talking about anything like that. Scaling the city of the mighty. Now, which city is that? Who's the mighty that we're talking about anyway? Who's the mighty one? what's What's the exact application here? And then if the A part is in parallel with the B part, and it is, it's not a contrast, it's not an A but B, it's an A and B poetry here. So a wise man scales the city to mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. Okay? We're talking in the spiritual dimension here about these strongholds that are systems of thought contrary to the Word of God, contrary to divine viewpoint. And you can see quite clearly the parallelism when you put it side by side with 2 Corinthians 10. So let's do that. 2 Corinthians 10 and the chapter there, let's see. Paul starts off here. I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. Apparently that was some of the criticism that was leveled against him, that he was kind of a pushover when he was present with him, but then he would write all these angry letters at him and so forth. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some, they know who they are, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. So there's a crowd that has this low view of Paul and his ministry, and they've got this idea that that he walks according to the flesh. And he says, they're going to find out when I get there, okay? For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And this is the principle. We want to understand this. Because this is us. We have physical human bodies. We have an earthly walk. But this is not how we wage war. The conflict we're engaged in is not physical. It's not in the flesh. It's not a physical war, a tangible war in this physical. It's the invisible war. To quote Donald uh, Gray Barnhouse in that great book, The Invisible War. All right, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Notice that? Divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And this just screams Proverbs 21, 22 here. <laughs> How the wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust the stronghold in which they trust. Well, who's the they? Well, it's the people that are opposed to the wise man. It's the unbelievers, the carnal believer. It's the the other side in the angelic conflict. And they are making their own faith applications because they're trusting. But it's a satanic faith and it's it's, uh, it's not trusting in the Lord. It's not trusting in in, uh, the Lord God of Israel or trusting in the word of the living God. So it's a pseudo-faith in a pseudo-object. This is the way the the adversary works. He promotes a false wisdom, a false faith, and uh, false systems of of, uh, thinking. 
Again, 2 Corinthians 3, we do not war according, attend verses 3 and following, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And then it tells us how we do it. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so this is how we engage in the angelic conflict. This is how we function as, as uh, you know, special forces behind enemy lines. Because we're, we're living in a fallen world. And the, uh, the mindset of this world is hostile to the Word of God. And so uh, these speculations and these lofty things, what do we do? Do we just go along with them? Do we agree with them? No, we destroy them. We destroy them. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. How do we destroy them? We blow them up. We use the weapons that God gives us. Divinely powerful. And I tell you, the most powerful thing He's given us, beyond the fact, of course, that the omnipotent Holy Spirit lives in us, okay, but we have the, the divine power of, of His Word. The divine power of the Word of God. The Word of God is alive and powerful. And so it's the Word of God that destroys these speculations and these lofty things, these um, thought processes, these attitudes, these philosophies, these worldview expressions that are hostile to Bible doctrine. And so uh, if... If uh, the Word of God says male and female, He created them, and this fallen world says, oh, there's 615 genders, well, that's a speculation and we need to destroy it. That is a lofty thing. It is, uh, it is a thing that puffs up and it's raised up against the knowledge of God. It's our generation's Tower of Babel. Remember, the Tower of Babel was a tower. We'll study this in Genesis. But the idea was that human effort can, uh, can attain heaven or something better than heaven. Going back, of course, to Satan's lie. Satan felt he was a better God than God. So we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And that's not, is that not enough? <laughs> okay? We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's our own thinking. That's their thinking. That's their thinking. So how do we take their thinking captive? Okay? Anyway, this, uh, of course, we taught this. We had a Second Corinthians series. There's notes available in the hallway and on the website. There's MP3s available on the website. Um, mostly, I, I, as I remember it, um, I think mostly I emphasized our own personal thinking that we take captive. I'm starting to evaluate how I can take somebody else's thinking captive. And, uh, and I think the way I do it is um, because I don't just let their lies sit there without an answer. I give them an answer and then I give them something to think about. And then I let the power of the Word of God haunt them. Because once the Word is out there, it's not because I'm so smart or special or whatever, I'm useless, but the point is the Word accomplishes the purpose for which it's sent. That it does not return void. That once I put it out there, God, that God's Word is going to do what God's Word is going to do. And if that means that it haunts somebody, that they think about it, that they remember it 10 years later, 20 years later, whatever, great. 
It's, it's the ultimate fire and forget cruise missile, <laughs> okay? You know, we, we got weapons that are like that. The army's got, you know, the military's got weapons that are like that. It's called fire and forget because you got a target, you push the button, you fire the thing, and then you don't have to worry about it after that. You can go on to the next target. You can be looking for the next thing to shoot at because you can forget about the, the round you just sent down range. It's going to do what it's going to do, self-guided and correcting and whatever else. And, and this is the Word of God. It's a marvelous fire and forget weapon. You just launch it out there and then, uh, you know, the best part is you can go home and go to sleep and do what you're doing. And um, I think that's how Pastor Dan Craw got saved because he was sitting here on a Wednesday night and then he went home and by 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, it was still haunting him. And then he starts reading this book and all these things coming together. So we are destroying speculations. Now, this might shock us because then you go back to Proverbs and you say, wait a minute, that's in the Old Testament? <laughs> Scaling the city of the mighty, bringing down the stronghold in which they trust. So if you think about it, these, uh, these philosophies, these worldviews, these thought processes, these uh, lofty things that are raised up against the knowledge of God, the people that are living in them, they love living in them. It gives them comfort. It's their security blanket. It's their affirmation. It's their validation. Uh, they don't want to admit that they're wrong. And so if they accumulate enough people that agree with them, then they can mutually reinforce each other and say, hey, look at this, we're right because we all agree with us. <laughs> and those other people are clearly haters because they don't agree with us and they hate us. So here's the thing, just tear those walls down. Expose the, you know, show the emperor he's got no clothes. Bring down the stronghold in which they trust. And if you just lay it bare, the, the thing that they're trusting in, Show them the worthlessness of the object of their faith. The value of faith is in the merit of the object, not how fervently they believe it. And so it's, it's kind of neat to see this in the Old Testament, to realize that, wait a minute, the, the angelic conflict didn't start with the church age. We're the intensified stage of the angelic conflict, and we do. We have far more engagement possibilities than they ever dreamed of. And we do have armor in Ephesians 6 that they were not provided. And we are a heavenly people that they were not, right? They were a redeemed people. They were a regenerate people. They were born again, uh, but they were not a heavenly people. And they were not baptized into union with Jesus Christ. And they were not sealed unto the day of redemption as we are with the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we have a lot of resources available to us. They were never told to wrestle against, uh, as, as we were told, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers. Now, that those same principalities and powers were around back then. Satan afflicted Job, and Job had no Bible to, to deal with it. But we have the armament they were not given. And I hope we, as we start to draw these distinctions, that we can appreciate what we've been given, but not denigrate what they did with what they were given. Because they did an awful lot with what they were given. So we have the Hall of Fame of Faith. And look what they did with what they were given. Far less than what we're given. So they engaged in these things. They destroyed strongholds and they brought down these cities and these thought processes. They, uh, they destroyed speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. You know, David had confidence uh, going up against Goliath and it was strictly because this uncircumcised Philistine was taunting the armies of the living God. And that's, that's exactly what we're dealing with here. 
This is a, a wise man ready to go destroy a, a stronghold. All right, so we have the, uh, the issues there, and I hope that's helpful. Let me now get this back down to where it belongs. And show you what we're dealing with. All right. So again, the point in the outline is point 18. Proverbs 21-22 is the Old Testament predecessor to 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. The blessings of divine viewpoint for believers, for believers grounded in the Word of God, arm us for the angelic conflict. I would also uh, highlight here Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And I think this is another passage that we could think of only in temporal life issues, only in secular applications. Um, But what happens if we look at Jeremiah 1, verses 9 and 10 in the spiritual dimension? And and which one is, is more in focus as the Lord commissions Jeremiah to his work assignment? So the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. Okay, and this is nine verses into the book. Uh, Let me just highlight a little bit here. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. He was of a priestly line, but really his call to prophetic ministry is what takes center stage. He was kind of not appreciated by the, the, uh, the priests of his day. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. And uh, just remember, Josiah is the last good king. That, uh, and he has an inexplicable departure from office. <laughs> you wonder, seriously? You were looking forward to more, more years of glory, more years of goodness, more, years, more great things were on the way the longer that Josiah can stay in office. But then... He, he, he decides to go attack Egypt and, and he's warned not to and, and then he dies and, and Judah's wondering what happened to, to all the great things we had going on with good King Josiah. And in an explicable early departure from office, now they got Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and Zedekiah and it's just three wicked kings before the whole thing ends. Because the uh, Jerusalem is destroyed, the Davidic throne is vacated and they go off into captivity. So Jeremiah is the prophet that is in ministry as, uh, as the last good king departs, and then as three wicked kings follow, and then as Jerusalem is destroyed, and Jeremiah's got to stay in ministry through all of that. Okay. Came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So uh, you think about of all the eras of Israel's history, of all the eras to be in ministry, this is what, Josiah, this is what Jeremiah was called to do. And then uh, Daniel, of course, had a tandem ministry in Babylon and Ezekiel. But uh, Jeremiah had to stay there and watch it all happen. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So he's a Jewish prophet and he's writing Hebrew scriptures and much of his ministry is in Jerusalem rebuking the, the wicked kings and, uh, and so forth. But notice his appointment is to the goyim, to the nations, to the Gentiles. 
but how much traveling did he do? And how was this exercised? And in what form and fashion did this take? Because he actually reveals very little of it in, in the text of Jeremiah or Lamentations or anything else. We've got just little glimpses when he rebukes a Gentile nation, but we don't really have narrative. We don't have a story. Yeah, there's no jo- uh, book of Jonah equivalent for Jeremiah. So we don't know, you know that he tried to board a boat and got swallowed by a whale. We, we don't know the story of, of Jeremiah like we know Jonah. We know that Jonah pouted when he got there and he sat under the tree and all that. You know, maybe we'll get a clue on that someday. But nevertheless, he was appointed as a prophet to the nations. So I said, alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth. Now here's the thing, when you're engaged in ministry, don't, uh, you know, and don't uh, start making these excuses for disobeying the commands of God. God told you to go do something, go do something. Don't, because uh, when, when you say, oh, but I'm but a youth, or Moses said, oh, well, I, I don't, I'm not eloquent, or other people, I mean, there's no shortage of excuses that are out there. But every time we make those excuses, we're, we're acting as if God's ignorant of, of these things, right? Like God's going to go, oh, 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 I'm sorry, my bad, I forgot how young you are, okay? God knows that he's a youth. That's part of why he called him at this moment. God's not ignorant of the tools that he's selecting. He's using the exact tool he wants in the exact way at the exact time. Do not say I'm a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. So this is his call to ministry, and this is uh, how he gets started. So then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. The Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. Now we don't know what form or fashion this was. Was this the angel of the Lord that appeared to him, you know, visibly, bodily? We don't exactly know. How was the stretching out? How was the touch? Did he feel it? You know, in any event, hand, mouth, okay. It was probably a, a, a Christological uh, a Christophany, as we say, an, an appearance. Usually it was the angel of the Lord that manifest uh, to appear before human beings. Stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And so I ask the question, we have a literal hermeneutic, we want to take these expressions literally, and we do take these expressions literally, but do we take these expressions literally in the, in the scope of, of secular life, or do we take these expressions literally as the metaphors that they appear to be? Because remember, even though we take it as a metaphor, metaphor we still handle the words themselves literally. So literally plucking up, literally breaking down, literally destroying, literally overthrowing, literally building, literally planting. But is that in the physical realm? Or do we take these metaphorically and apply and literally apply them in the spiritual realm? Is that where our plucking up and breaking down takes place? Is that where our destroying and overthrowing takes place? 
Or do I want to grab a pitchfork and, and go storm the Capitol in Washington, D.C.? What am I going to do? Okay? Or am I going to be spiritually destroying teaching the Word of God and equipping the saints for the work of service? Okay? And so this is part of, I think, a, a useful exercise as well because for the um, branches of Christendom that are out there that uh, don't like uh, our tradition, <laughs> okay, uh, and that's the majority, okay, the bulk of uh, churchianity today is not free grace, not dispensational, not, um, they don't have the literal hermeneutic. In fact, they mock us for a literal her- hermeneutic. They um, are, are very, um, very much the go along and get along because their definition of love is let's approve of every perversion that's out there and don't call it perversion, okay? And in fact, they go so far as to say that our flavors of Christianity are not, not real Christianity, that we are wrong, that we are full of hate, that we're primitive, that, we're, that we, have to, we have to update our, our, ourselves. We have to update ourselves, okay? And so they, they view um, with an with a evolutionary lens, they view that, that, um, that Christianity is evolving like everything else has evolved in, in human evolution. And so it's just us. We're still the Neanderthals that haven't evolved yet <laughs> because we have the literal text of the Scriptures. And this is, what we, this is how we ground our thinking and this is how we, we base our lives. And so I don't have any issue with pluck up and break down. Let's look at the Hebrew. Let's look at the vocabulary. We're going to understand the literal sense, the literal meaning of these literal words. But then that's not going to stop us, though, from from evaluating, do I take this literal word metaphorically or do I take it and make its application in the physical universe and in my temporal life? Am I explaining this well enough? You catch what I'm saying here? All right. I figure if I say it four or five different times with as many different ways as I can that maybe it'll come up. But see, so so here's the thing. Just because it's a metaphor, we still handle it literally, the literal words. And, we, and there will be an obvious application to be made. Okay, When Jesus says, I am the door, that's a metaphor. But for us to properly understand the metaphor, we have to accept the fact that the door he's using in, in a metaphor is a literal door. It's a, the word is literally door. And we use that word literally so that when we when we unfold the metaphor properly that we're not adrift see anyway so yes we're going to be literally plucking up and, me- and breaking down in the meta- in the metaphoric application in spiritual life and that's what jeremiah was called to do i believe to destroy and to overthrow to build and to plant I, there's no record that the prophet jeremiah went to any gentile nation much less all of them uh, we have clues, though, that he did travel, and we have uh, we taught this in the Jeremiah series that he did travel, and he did address those nations. Um, but it was in the verbal proclamation of the word of God. Okay, in the verbal proclamation of the word of God, and that's how we uh, 
we handle it there. So anyway, just chew on these things and consider. I think too it's, it's worthwhile pointing out that uh, one of the big changes between um, Old Testament and New Testament, between Israel and the church, is that um, Israel was a theocracy. They were a theocratic kingdom. Always were, always will be a theocratic kingdom. And so prophets had spoke the word of the Lord to rebuke even their own kings, the, the Jewish kings that were out of line. But then, of course, Gentile kings are out of line, subject to rebuke, telling Nineveh to repent and, and telling uh, uh, Edom that they were doomed, all kinds of things like that. And they had every right to do so. Prophets of God would speak on behalf of the theocratic nation. The church is not a theocratic nation. And um, the pastor-teacher role is not analogous to an Old Testament prophet. This got me in trouble with some of the political groups around here that uh, invited me to be a part of the Austin Area Pastors Council who, who felt that today's pastor-teachers were required by Scripture to speak with a prophetic voice to, to the government. And that's, there's no analogy between church-age pastor-teachers and Old Testament theocratic prophets. And I think you get in trouble if you try to claim that. Anyway, so stay tuned for some more teaching there. By the way, I've resigned my position with that group, so you might pray over that. The blessings of a divine viewpoint for believers grounded in the Word of God arm us for the angelic conflict. And you want to know something? Even in the darkness of his human viewpoint, reversionism, Solomon remembered an echo of this truth. Even in the darkness of his human viewpoint, reversionism. The book of Ecclesiastes, God the Holy Spirit inspired the authorship of a book that largely reflected Solomon's human viewpoint during his personal reversionism, his time away from the Word of God. And yet the Holy Spirit accurately recorded human viewpoint in the Bible so we could see it for what it is. We can read it and tremble to think that if Solomon can depart from his wisdom, the rest of us are just as vulnerable. That we can dump doctrine and start substituting our own wisdom for what we think is right and wrong. And yet I'm encouraged by the fact that the Word of God is as powerful as it is. Because when you've got doctrine in your soul, then the echoes of that can still reverberate even when you're carnal. And the Holy Spirit can bring to remembrance the doctrine that's buried down deep in there. The doctrine you don't want to think about because you're, you're too busy having fun in your carnality. But it's still sitting there in your, in your soul, in the uh, memory banks and the, the, the storehouse. And the Holy Spirit just brings it out and dusts it off and you know, hits you with it, slaps you around a bit. <laughs> it's thank God that he does. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 9 and uh, see this echo here. Ecclesiastes 9 and if I can, I'm headed for verses 13 through 18. I don't know that we need to see a whole bunch of this prior to verse 13. But this is part of his um, doom and gloom, part of his uh, reflection and, and discouragements over the fact that it sure seems like we all end up at the same place anyway, so why bother being righteous? And um, 
It's the same for all. There's one fate for the righteous and one for the wicked, for the good and for the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers the sacrifice, for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who's afraid to swear. We all, you live and then you die. You know, what a, what a terrible way to look at life. Um, there is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Start to wonder if Solomon was around to see our day and age. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. <laughs> you know, there's just some of these verses you want to put on a business card and, and just, you know, it's kind of interesting. Anyway, let's get down to, uh, yeah, again, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished. They no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, that shows up. He's, he's just looking at secular life. He's looking at temporal life living and what happens. You're born... You, you, you live, you die. Um, you know, he, he tried everything that, that money could buy. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. It's almost like a Nike commercial. Life is short. Play hard. Okay? Eat the best food. Drink the best wine. You know, if you can find one woman that you love, I mean, he had a thousand. I hope he loved one of them. Okay? Enjoy life with a woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. Your miserable, poor, wretched existence. All right. But then notice, there's a little bit of an echo, and he starts to venture into realms that if we didn't know better, we'd start to think maybe he's back in fellowship here. Maybe he's kind of talking himself back into confession at some point. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. And, and th this actually, because we can find parallels for this in Proverbs and other wisdom literature, I think this is not a wrong statement. The, the time you have here is the only time you have to lay up treasure in heaven, to grow, to bear fruit, to, you know, when you leave this world, you're done with your, you know, you've, you've done what you've done for your eternal reward. So do it now and do it with all your might. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the warriors. Um, there we go. The race is not to the swift and the battle not to the warriors. Neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning for, nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. And he's not wrong in earthly terms as far as, as, far as this goes. And then when we can relate it to Proverbs and other uh, passages of scripture, we can see there's divine viewpoint in this. Echoes a divine viewpoint that get expressed even in the, even in the uh, depression that he's he's battling through. In fact, this is an interesting hymn because uh, Fanny Crosby adapted this verse in one of her hymns. Not to the strong is the battle, not to the swift is the race, and so she wrote a hymn based upon this verse in Ecclesiastes. 
Moreover, man does not know his time like a fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when suddenly it falls on them. We don't know when our time is up. And invariably, it's always uh, inconvenient. <laughs> you know, oh, is that today? Okay. And, and we weren't planning on it. Okay. Our spouse wasn't planning on it. Our children weren't planning on it. And, um, but we just don't know. The bird didn't know the net was going to catch him either. And uh, that's why we're supposed to, and this is why when he's in fellowship, he says, you know, let's present to God a, a heart of wisdom. We've got to redeem the time. We've got to uh, live our days uh, with wisdom. All right. Then we get to the, the issue here in verse 13. Also this I came to see is wisdom under the sun, and it has impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. And was this a real story? It makes me wonder. <laughs> okay. You know, he had stories far and wide, and people came to him from all over the world, and he was collecting proverbs, and he was collecting stories, and, and this. So maybe it was true. Maybe this was just a story that he gathered. So, uh, yeah, sounds bad. Small city, few men in it. Great king came to it. So this battle's not going to go well. Surrounded it, constructed large siege works against it. You know, sieges always work if you just wait long enough. They will run out of food. They will starve. As long as you have enough food to sit there bored waiting for them to die. <clears throat> anyway, but there was found in it a poor wise man and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Don't know how he did it, but he did it. Okay? Yet no one remembered that poor man. Who got the credit for this victory? When, when, they, when they look back at this day and age, who was credited as the Savior? The wrong guy gets the credit. Okay, the guy with the better PR. <laughs> you know, the guy that, uh, you know, the guy, the, but probably, it wasn't the poor wise man, it was probably the rich guy that took credit for what the poor wise guy was, was uh, the idea he came up with. No one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. So what do you want to be? Do you want to be wise or do you want to be remembered? Do you want to get the credit? See, the wise man doesn't take the credit. The wise man credits God. Wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So the guy up there on the wall, the guy up there shouting the orders, the guy up there get, who's got all the credit, all the glory, did he really win the day? Or was he just uh, happened to be there when the, the poor wise man discovered the, uh, the solution? Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wow. <laughs> Back to the depression again. Anyway, there's, uh, but you can see as you read through it and you start to kind of filter, that's why Ecclesiastes is so unique and you've got to be careful as you go through, but the, you, can, you, can, you can hear echoes of things that maybe he learned when he was in fellowship, things that maybe he, you know, some truth that he still had in his recall. 
But it's interesting that he phrases this. His, the message in this chapter is a message, the same author. Solomon is the same author that wrote Proverbs 21, 22. And uh, how a wise man can scale a city and bring down the, the fortress of, of, uh, of, of things that they're trusting in. Anyway, it's an interesting thing to me. All right, well, there's, there's the issue there. Let's look at verse 23. He who guards his mouth, back to Proverbs 21 then. Nope, don't do that. All right, here we go. There's got to be a better way of doing this. Proverbs 21, 23. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. Yep, I agree. <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of these verses just preach themselves. What am I supposed to say? Um, in fact, if I try to improve upon it, I'll probably just make it worse. Because um, in a multitude of words, uh, it's hard to avoid sin. Anyway. We all can experience, of course, the danger of, of uh, the tongue and the warnings that we have. And this is not the first time in Proverbs we've hit this. This has come up again and again. We've got to guard our mouth and our tongues. We've got to look out. So point 19, forget gun control. We need mouth control, all right? Forget gun control. We need mouth control. We need mouth and tongue control. And ideally, the, the Word of God that just saturates our thinking so that with uh, the right-minded, uh, like-mindedness with Jesus Christ, we can be swift to hear, slow to speak. That, um, and it's a mark of wisdom. It's a mark of maturity. And it's pretty rare, actually. We've seen this before, way back in chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 18. Probably more than that. In fact, I think it's definitely more than that. But we've seen it in these passages. Why does the same thing keep getting hammered over and over and over again? Because it needs to be hammered over and over and over again. Watch what you say. Guard your mouth and your tongue. As you do that, you're guarding your soul from troubles. You understand that mental attitude sins damage the soul. Sins of the tongue damage the soul. Overt sins damage the soul. Guarding your soul from troubles as you guard your mouth and your tongue. Remember we, as we were talking in Genesis about how the, the vocabulary from the Garden of Eden was so foundational, so fundamental to all of Scripture. Adam was placed in the garden with two objectives, to cultivate it and to guard it, to keep it. The principle of guarding is so vital in the Old Testament, New Testament alike, and particularly in guarding the soul. But here it's guarding the soul by means of guarding the, the mouth and the tongue. But these things, and I think uh, we've got, uh, now we're living in the generation where nobody's guarding anything and that, uh, and that we're not, certainly not guarding the, the mouth and the tongue and we're spatting everything out there. We can tweet it, we can Facebook it, we can, we can uh, I mean, how many other venues are out there? There's, I don't even know some of the newer ones. Uh, telegram, we can telegram it. 
I tried that app out the other day and the, the notifications are driving me insane. So I think I'm going to get rid of that dumb thing. But, you know, if you want to spout a thought, you can spout a thought. And there's, you know, people that'll listen and then they'll spout their thought because they weren't really listening anyway. But it, it's just amazing to me the things that happen and how much damage then gets done. So, uh, just seven minutes left. Let's take a look at some of these. Proverbs ten nineteen, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. So uh, sometimes just stop. Don't say anymore, okay? You got your foot in your mouth, just stop. Because uh, the more you keep trying to fix that, you're just putting your second foot in your mouth. So stop, <laughs> okay? Transgression is unavoidable. He who restrains his lips is wise. You know, a lot of these have these logos here too, which means that there's uh, some kind of a graphic, there's some kind of a media. They've done a slide with those verses. So that's interesting. All right, because we had that in 21.23. Yep, there was a verse there. We also have it in 13.3. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. So are you guarding your mouth? You're preserving your nefesh, your soul, your, your soul life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. How about 17.27? 27 and 28. Proverbs 17, 27. He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. You know, human viewpoint, you try to impress it, people with what you know, and if you talk a lot, you might make them think you know a lot, <laughs> okay? And uh, yeah, you can fool some of the people some of the time. But the, um, you know, restraining your words probably shows you have more knowledge than, than the next guy. And uh, the cool spirit, now you really have the understanding. Now you're Christ-like. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. <laughs> you know, better to stay quiet and appear stupid than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. I think my dad used to tell me that. Uh, but when he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. No, he just doesn't know what to say. <laughs> so he just acts like he knows what you're talking about. How about uh, Proverbs 18.21? Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So you can't just stay silent all the time. The answer isn't to just shut up and never say anything. Because there is a time to speak. And in, in that timely moment when you have wisdom, you have the right word at the right time in the right way and there's nothing better. And a lot of times that's what grabs your attention is somebody that's normally pretty quiet and reserved and then all of a sudden you had something to say, something to contribute, like well, where's that coming from? Ooh, I'm going to pay attention to that. This guy doesn't usually, you know, and that gets my attention like wow, okay. The other guy that's never nonstop babbling, constantly, uh, ha, you know, 
tune him out, you know. In fact, maybe it is important this time, but I wouldn't know. I quit listening to him 20 minutes ago. The, so you understand there's a value and a benefit when you do have the right words to say. That's why death and life, death and life, it's the power of the tongue. Part of being made in the image of God, part of the, the privilege and responsibility that we have in order to convey the truth from our soul. We're actually conveying thought with, with words. Proverbs, uh, not Proverbs, Psalms. Psalm 34, verses 12 and 13. Who is, I think this is a Davidic psalm. Psalm of David, yes. When he feigned madness before Abimelech, when he's drooling in his beard and acting like a madman. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Notice before David gets to the overt activity, he says you've got to control the tongue. You've got to have that mouth control. If you desire life and you love length of days, then you may see good. Finally then, James 3. We'll have to end with this. Really the whole chapter, but um, bridling the tongue. James 3, verses 2 through 10. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. So if you have the mouth control, if you have mastery over your verbal expressions, that's a harder task than you know, other physical sins and other temptations and other overt activities. So uh, the man that controls his, his speech, that's a mature believer right there. That's a solid believer with doctrine that's molded and transformed by divine viewpoint. Anyway, we'll uh, have to end here. James 3, verses 2 through 10. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this class. We pray this class continues, Father, as long as you design it for. And uh, again, we're on a pace to, uh, well, it's in your hands, Father. If you want to get us through chapter 24 by the end of the year, we'll thank you for that. But uh, whatever else you have in store, Father, we uh, thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.